2: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. A roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And over the phone from Taichung, we've got ICRT Central Taiwan Bureau Chief Donovan Smith. Donovan.
0: Hey, good to be here.
2: And Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory is joining us today all the way from uh, Hong Kong. Uh, How's Hong Kong over there? Great. Good evening, guys. On the show today, we're going to be taking a look at some of the island's pollution woes that have actually been hitting the south and center particularly hard over the last couple of weeks. And we'll be talking about the decision to repeal the island's capital gains tax two years before it was even set to go into effect. Uh, But first, we've got three new fresh faces to add into the campaign for January's presidential election. The DPP announced early this week that Tsai Ing-wen will be joined on her presidential ticket by epidemiologist Chen Jianren, who, up until the announcement, served as vice president of Academia Sinica. Not to be outdone, both the KMT and People's First Party also announced their VEEP candidates later in the week. On the KMT side, they've got former Council of Labor Affairs Minister Jennifer Wong to add to the Eric Ju ticket. And on the PFP side, they've got Republic Party chairperson Xu Ying uh, to pair off with James Sung. So lots of new names and backstories to get up to speed on. Uh, let's just take this one at a time. Starting off with Chen Jianren on the DPP ticket, Gavin, uh, Mr. Chen, well, he is not exactly a political heavyweight, this guy, but he has earned a name for himself in other ways.
3: Well, I mean, under the Chen administration from 2000 to 2008, him, Chen Jianren... Served as the health minister of health, basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he slightly uh, different title back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was called the Department of Health. Now it's called the Ministry of Health and Welfare. Mm. But he headed the Ministry of Health during the SARS epidemic, of course, in two thousand and three. And he became a well-known sort of TV sort of face you see him all over the tv going mm. this is how what's happening sars is here da, 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 da. and apparently he was he was hailed for being an effective communicator and coordinator
2: well remembered for that episode well of
3: course if you live through the sars thing you realize it was a bit horrible but not a lot of people caught it in the big scheme of things mm-hmm. so they, he did quite a good job he also believe it or not headed the national science council Mm. which, is, of course, is another government agency that has since been renamed, and that's now called the Ministry of Science and Technology. Mm -hmm. Chen headed that organization from 2006 until 2008, basically.
2: But uh, bringing it back uh, just quickly before we get to the other uh, Veep candidates to uh, how this might kind of impact uh, the Tsai Ing-wen campaign. Now, uh, Gavin is kind of already alluding to this, but... uh, this uh, Mr. Chun, he is not a DPP member as of yet. So, uh, kind of what this is sort of all getting at is perhaps a bid towards bipartisanship. Is uh, Donovan? Is that what you're seeing? Maybe is going on here.
0: Well, possibly. I mean, obviously, his family, uh, uh, as Gavin mentioned, originally came from White Faction KMT, but he, he's an academic, and so, and obviously, right now there's a bit of a fashion for choosing, uh, you know, people from the medical field. Uh, obviously, with uh, William Lai and uh, Ke, you know and in, in Taipei, so that seems to be a little bit of a jumping on the bandwagon. And also, right now there's a perception that things the traditional politicians are not doing doing a very good job. So picking somebody from the medical profession is safe an academic, generally non-controversial, controversial, and somebody who is seen as Having handled the crisis in the past, so I, I think the the idea is more on on those lines.
2: Mm, so a don't rock the boat kind of candidate. All right, so uh, moving on to the other candidates that we got to know this week. Uh, People First Party uh, also had a bit of a moment. Uh, James Soon introduced us to Republic Party chairperson Shu Xin-ing. And uh, Gavin, perhaps this is another nod towards bipart- bipartisanship because she is uh, not a member of the PFP as well. Well, she was a former KMT
3: member and she was she's quite new to politics. She was in, only elected to the Shinzu County as a lawmaker in 2012. That's when she worked for the KMT. Mm-hmm. And but she, her family her family's is deeply entrenched in the KMT, but she's, she's a new one to it, basically. She withdrew from the KMT, however, in January of this year, and then she formed her Republic Party, which is technically a, a nationalist party, but not in the KMT sort of framework. Different name.
0: Mm-hmm. But
3: if you look at the Chinese, it's sort of slightly the same name.
0: Yeah, the MKT instead of the KMT. Yeah,
3: basically, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we we don't really know much about her. She's a bit of an outsider here, of course. So, you know. But, of course, this is all part of James Sung's grand coalition government plan, where he wanted to have alliances with other parties. Mm Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I don't, wouldn't really call an alliance with another party that's basically the same as his party being a big alliance, personally. It's the, one of the same, basically, you know. Also, what's interesting, of course, it, she's, she's sort of more level-headed than James Sung's 2012 pick, of course. <laughs> the, the, the famous lin Ray Shong, who have came out... He was, of course, famous for accusing the National Security Bureau of trying to get into his head with electromagnetic waves. So hopefully we won't see anything like that from her.
2: I should hope not. Not to uh, give the PFP pick uh, too short shrift, but uh, we got to keep things moving on to the KMT candidate, which came up last in the week. Uh, And so we were introduced to Jennifer Wong. Uh, Once again, I mentioned this already, but once again, she was the Council of Labor Affairs Minister between 2008 and 2012, Uh, And uh, I hate to open this bit with uh, bad press, but uh, there was a bit of a pushback on the announcement from labor groups in Taiwan, Gavin.
3: Yeah, there's a good split on Jennifer Wong because, of course, she stepped down from her post in 2012 as labor minister because basically the government failed to back a proposal that she had to raise the minimum wage and also link pay for foreign laborers to the domestic minimum wage. Now, technically, if you're a laborer, this sounds a good idea. If, you, on the other hand, you happen to own factories and companies, maybe you wouldn't like this idea very much because, of course, it means you've got to pay the people more money.
2: Right. And then there was another issue in which uh, a number of workers who had been given loans from the government way back in the 90s, uh, well, many of them hadn't paid back those loans. And uh, under her administration, the government went after them. And so she's being uh, blamed for going after those workers. So another kind of sore spot among uh, labor rights activists and and, and people that focus on those issues. Uh, Now, Eric Ju says that she is a good balance for his ticket because uh, he comes from more of an economics background. He has a Ph.D. in accounting, whereas she has more of a legal background. So he says and and he says that she has uh, focused an awful lot on uh, equality issues, including women's equality. So he says that he would be a good uh, complement to his campaign in that way. Uh, Ross, what do you see there? Do Do you see that playing any role in the campaign moving forward?
1: Well, it, 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 it's a fair assessment by Eric Jude. The reality is that Jennifer Wong does have a almost twenty-year career in the public eye, fighting for women's equality and labor rights. Uh, as as labor minister, of course, uh, there were the, some of the issues that you mentioned. There's always going to be some groups that are unhappy. There are factories that get closed, and they blame the government for not forcing the company to pay them more compensation. So, she becomes the target of that kind of criticism. But but the reality, frankly, is that that she does have a a, a demonstrable history of fighting for labor rights and women rights. And uh, it is a good balance to Eric Jews' skills as more of someone familiar with economic development and business issues. So to the extent that a vice president candidate even matters, this is a very balanced pick.
2: Well, let's hit on that point uh, as we close out this segment. Oh, I, I hate to undercut the entire uh, first segment that we've uh, been doing here, but I, I guess the question does have to be asked. How much does the vice presidential pick matter at all? Is it going to affect the, the, the final outcome? Uh, Donovan, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, well, I think for Taiwan, basically not at all. I mean, she's, she's, she's pretty much got it locked. She picked a really boring choice. Uh, I think Song's Canada choice was a very interesting one uh, because they're polling it about, the MKT is polling at about 2%. So this might be a way for the MKT to pull up and the PFP to find allies and uh, bring in some f- fresh blood. So I think it was a, an important choice for him.
2: So it could actually affect the legislator at large seats in some of those legislative races? Exactly, yes. Uh, real quick, before we uh, close out this segment, uh, Ross, what are your thoughts there? Is this going to have any kind of reverberations as we get closer to the election?
1: Well, given, given where we are in the polls and how close we are getting to the election, it, it's hard to imagine that uh, any of these picks are going to substantially change the current situation.
2: Even for the legislative races?
1: Even for the legislative races.
2: All right. Well, there you have it. Real, real quick, well, we're headed toward a commercial break now, uh, but before we get there... Uh, Now, we don't have time to go into this in depth, but I just want to note the fact that uh, we learned yesterday that Taiwan has, in fact, signed a fisheries agreement with the Philippines. Uh, This is an issue we've discussed before on the show. Uh, We've been expecting something to come up uh, on this for a while, and uh, now we know that Something along these lines was signed earlier this month. Basically, uh, what this uh, agreement was aimed at is figuring out how enforcement agencies from the two different countries uh, should handle fishing matters in overlapping waters. So, uh, Gavin, what do we know about what's in this thing?
3: Well, we know that the agreement contains seven articles and includes three important points of consensus. And these parts have already been implemented, and they include avoiding the use of violence or unnecessary force, establishing an emergency notification system and setting up a prompt release mechanism that's regarding the seizure of other the other side's fishing vessels in waters supposedly belonging to the other side however there are still issues and the issues remain around the manila's insistence that its territorial waters stretch further out into seas than the un agreement on this states so taipei is still going You have to agree to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea as a belt of coastal waters which extends almost 12 nautical miles from the baseline of a coastal state. However, Manila is talking about expanding this further than Mm. the 12 nautical miles, and Taipei doesn't really want this. So this part, although they've signed an agreement to cooperate on incidents that happen in in their economic waters or waters that are shared, the issue of the limit surrounding the continental shelves of both the territories is still up for question.
2: Right, so a bit of a thorny issue that uh, they still need to kind of figure something out. Of course, uh, the the, the real issue is uh, Taiwanese fishermen, you know, kind of crossing that line and going over uh, into those Philippines waters. And uh, in the past, this has resulted in incidents that, uh, you know, in one case was uh, lethal back in 2013. So hopefully this agreement can uh, curb some of that violence and and, and make uh, future incidents resolve a little bit more amicably but uh, as i said we are now heading into a break when we come back we got pollution woes and uh, taxation controversies so lots of reasons to stick around right here right yeah that's uh, that those are reasons to stick around so look for that when we return Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Donovan Smith and Ross Feingold. Jumping right on back into things, it's time to clear the air. Not figuratively. We've been literally choking on pretty high amounts of pollution this past couple of weeks. And this has, of course, led to calls for emergency reductions in emissions uh, and just a general better plan for how to deal with these situations when they arrive, but before we get to uh, that response uh, gavin let 's start with uh, can we put any numbers to this how How bad has it really been this last couple of weeks? Two words: filthy Monday. Filthy Monday. That
3: was November the 9th. That was, yeah, that was November the 9th. That was filthy. That became known as Filthy Monday here in Taiwan. To rival Black Monday. Well, I don't know about that. But I mean, isn't, it's Black Monday, you go shopping. Filthy Monday, you don't want to do anything. <laughs> well, apparently on Monday, November the 9th, the air pollution index was an incredibly unhealthy range of 10 in parts of the island. Now, that that number is based on the island's PM 2.5 level.
2: The nasty little bits that'll the, get in your the, lungs. Yeah, the
3: 2.5 micrometer pieces of pollution that float around. Well, a 10 is not good. Mm. Now, that wasn't the only one, because on Filthy Monday, western areas of the center and the north where the PM pollution levels actually stood at 9 and 7. Mm-hmm. 9 is obviously pretty, pretty bad, and mm-hmm. seven's also pretty bad.
2: OK, so now we've got some numbers to that, uh, and uh, this has led for, uh, to a little bit of action from the central government.
3: It has, yes. The Environmental Protection Administration this week, in fact Tuesday of this week, said it will add measurements for fine particulate matter smaller than 2.5 micrometres to its air pollution control standards. Mm. This, of course, is in the wake of... A filthy Monday and then quite bad Tuesday and pretty nasty wednesday
2: <laughs> so they 're starting to recognize these fine particulate basically uh, carcinogens. As uh, a legitimate form of pollution, I guess. Yeah,
3: under the new composite standard, this is according to the Environmental Protection Administration, there will be a four-tier PM2.5 index in addition to existing measurements of air pollutants. Mm. And these include sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, and ozone. Lots of fun stuff. Now, the four levels are defined as PM2.5 concentrations of over 54, 150, 250, and 350 micrograms per cubic metre.
2: And so these are the various densities it can be at, and they're saying that they'll have a different response depending on the density that depending they measure. Depending on the density, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: But I, I, they, they added the 300 – of course, adding the 250 and the 350 sort of, I think, scared a lot of people. But I right. they did come out and say, "Don't worry, you That's know." That's never actually happened. Never happened. Never <laughs> have it happened. In fact, in fact, the highest PMI two point five reading on record mm. stood at two hundred and thirty three micrograms per cubic meter, mm. and that was, of course, on December the seventh of twenty thirteen.
2: That's not too far ago.
3: But, of course, what one has to remember is talking about air pollution. While sometimes we talk about the air pollution coming from China, the recent air pollution, including filthy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on and so forth, actually came from taiwan itself
2: right i mean the the big issue was there wasn't enough wind lack of wind so you can't blame china because nothing was getting blown over yes now what uh quickly uh before we move on what are some of the things that they're uh saying that the government will do when it gets into these you know various regions these various densities
3: well apparently i mean there's been talk basically about having days off Mm -hmm. so schools will possibly be cancelled
2: like a snow day just grosser
3: yeah we don't have snow days either do we this Mm. is a pollution day
2: a pollution day okay
3: and they're going to talk to the big polluting companies to cut down on their emissions Mm -hmm. and various other things like possibly i mean the extreme one Mm -hmm. is to sort of ban cars from certain areas but that's pretty extreme that's beijing extreme that's that's, it's very extreme But of course when it comes to extreme pollution donovan's been chewing on it of course for several (laughs) weeks now
2: it's been worse in the center is what i hear
0: yeah, starting actually last fall, uh, starting basically the fall of last year, the, the kind of the epicenter of Taiwan's air pollution has switched from the sort of the Gaoping area, Kaohsiung, Pingdong, that way, and it's moved up here to Zhang Huan, Nanto, and Taichung. Um, I don't know about Dirty Monday. It was Dirty Friday down here. Friday the 13th was the worst day of the year here in Taichung. And uh, so here in central Taiwan, it was Friday that was the big sort of, you know, raise the alarm day. Uh, but it, it, gavin's right i mean the whole week was it was, was pretty much disaster i have pictures out out of my window where a few kilometers away the skyscrapers in uh, chi chi you couldn't even see them i mean it was it was it, it was fog levels of air pollution.
2: Uh, and we saw in the last couple of weeks, uh, Mayor of Taichung, Lin Jialong, uh, he has been pretty irate about what's been going on, and uh, he has been one of the main voices calling for maybe a plan that makes a bit more sense.
0: Yeah, uh, Yunlin, Yunlin and uh, Taichung have all been, uh, local governments have all been really trying to tackle this. Um, Lin actually managed to get the um, the Taichung power plant, which is the world's largest... Uh, coal fired power plant uh, to actually bring down their pow- their power output by eighteen uh, percent the week before, and now he 's actually putting in a system where he it, 's worked out, and Thai powers has agreed to this where if uh, or at least in principle where if half of the uh, the monitoring stations in in Taichung register a level of ten or purple, which is the highest level of EPA emissions uh, reporting, that they will actually bring down their power output so that their uh, pollution output uh, re- reduces as well. Now, the Taichung power plant by itself produces roughly something like 80% of Taichung City's uh, emissions output. So it's uh, <laughs> it really kind of, you can focus on that and the Dragon Steel plant and that the two of them are well over eighty percent of all the emissions in Taichung.
3: Right, of course, Nantou and Zhenghua county governments, I believe, are also taking their own action about this. Yeah,
0: well, Zhenghua is particularly concerned about not only the Taichung power plant, but uh, from Yunlin, the Maileo. There's the all the the naphtha cracker, crackers and all that down there, and in Taishi, which is uh, just across the river, the drawshui from. From Mailiao they they, they they say there's increased cancer rates, which uh, they can 't prove per se are you know there's direct cause, but it 's very suggestive nanto 's biggest problem is that the air pollutants come in from from the Mailiao plant and from Taichung, and then they they kind of bowl up against the mountains. And then just drop in on Puli and Shaley and that, that, that region there because the the air gets trapped up against the
3: mountains. It's a shame about Puli, it's quite a nice place, actually, of course. It is, of course, it's quite beautiful. Picture it when you can see it.
2: Right, and so a a dynamic that we're kind of seeing emerge here is uh, these local county governments are saying, whoa, 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 hello, you know, there's this huge uh, pollution problem down here, we need to crack down on this, we need some kinds of solutions, Uh, whereas the central government is, you know, kind of putting the brakes on some of those solutions. So uh, tell us a little bit about that.
0: The local governments are starting to pass laws and trying to pass laws which are in, in direct conflict with the EPA and uh, but Lin Jialong seems to be the most effective in that Yunlin Yun actually passed a law banning use of, of bituminous coke, uh, coke and and coal, and the EPA got got that totally overruled. But Lin Jiao Long's actually made some headway because what he's been doing is and is that he's he's trying to get laws passed on the one hand, which he's not doing very well, but. He's actually negotiating directly with Thai Power, and they seem to be buckling a little bit under the pressure, and that seems to be the most effective strategy right now. But he's called on the National EPA, and, he, and his specific quote was, "Whose side are you on?"
3: That was kind of ironic because, of course, the when the Yuen Lin County government did it, the central government terminal said, "No, it's cutting all the power and cutting all the stopping all the factories from polluting the world and the country is not part of our environmental strategy." Which I sort of found quite ironic, really.
2: Mm, So a dynamic we will likely uh, see continue. All right, and moving uh, from death by smog to death by taxes. The capital gains tax, to uh, be more precise. Now, apparently, this is an issue that lawmakers can finally agree on. The two major political parties earlier this week overwhelmingly passed an amendment to abolish the capital gains tax. Uh, that was set to go into effect in 2018. Uh, so this is something that we've been hearing a lot about this year. Of course, uh, amendments to the capital gains tax were a part of Hong jus campaign when it was still running along. Eric Ju as well has been talking about modifying it for a while now. So a uh, point of major deliberation and discussion. But I have to admit, uh, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, to me, this seems like a fairly arcane policy issue, and it's been taking up an awful lot of real estate on the front pages of our papers uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm a little bit confused by this, but luckily we've got Ross here to break it down for us and explain how this has become the issue that it's become. Uh, first, though, Ross, can you tell us uh, in somewhat more concrete terms than I have uh, laid out, what exactly is not going into effect in 2018?
1: Well, what's not going to go into effect is a capital gain tax, it's basically a, a tax on the profit one makes from, from selling shares for more than you paid for it. The, the background here was, was the perception that there was an unfair element to stock trading, in that all buyers or sellers of shares, whether they were small people like us or large institutional investors, had to pay transaction tax. So, when you bought or sold shares, you paid a transaction tax, which is a, a very significant revenue generator for the government. The perception was that when people make a profit, especially large investors, large institutional investors make a profit, they didn't have to pay any profit tax on that so there was uh, a movement in the interest of what people considered tax fairness and possibly to address uh, the the wealth gap that people who make money off share trading should pay profits on that. And that is something that is common in other countries, but it is not something that uh, has existed recently in Taiwan, although it did exist in the past. So proposals were made and passed to implement a capital gains tax. Then people felt like it was bad for the stock market, that institutional investors and, uh, would not want to participate in a stock market that is going to tax their profits, and they would take their money to other markets where there are no such taxes and we've also seen over the last few years a, a decrease in trading volume in Taiwan which could be due to the possible capital gains tax it could be due to a lack of interest in the Taiwan market it could be due to the global economy there are a number of factors But pressure started to build to do away with the capital gains tax and the first steps over the course of this year as you mentioned was maybe to change the formula but now we've wound up where uh, we are this week, where the entire capital gains tax was eliminated.
2: And I guess the thing that I'm not getting here is, you know, when this was introduced during uh, the during President Ma's term, uh, you know, like you said, it was introduced in kind of an egalitarian spirit. This is something that would bring a little bit more equity uh, to the market. Uh, how did it turn on such a dime that now it is seen as one of, uh, you know, when Eric Ju talks about it, he lists it among the prime policy blunders of the Mod administration. How did it become seen as such a blunder?
1: Well, again, it, it, it's because of the, the the lack of vitality in the stock market, that trading volumes are not high. And this impacts not just the large investors, but even the, the retail investors. So what, what happened was something that was intended maybe to uh, tax the largest investors, actually had a negative impact where it was perceived to have a negative impact on even the smallest of investors. So the smallest of investors started to say, well, if the large investors are suffering, we're also suffering. And that drove the movement to simply eliminate the entire capital gains tax.
2: So what what is still in place, and I hope we don't go too much into the weeds right here, but what is still in place is a transaction tax. I believe that's 0.03% on every stock transaction. So is that going to operate something like a capital gains tax, or is that going to be something completely different?
1: Well, it's different in the sense that you pay the transaction tax whenever you buy or sell. It doesn't matter if you're making a profit on, your, on the sale of your shares. Again, the idea of the capital gains tax was to tax the profits of the large investors. Uh, but, but the feeling was that this caused uh, certain investors to lose interest in trading in Taiwan. That may or may not be an accurate assessment, but again, we, we do know that the Taiwan market has lost some of the vitality that it had in recent years. One reason might be the capital gains tax. There are also economic factors. But there's also an a, 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 a overriding principle here that, that should be kept in mind, and that's repeated change in direction of policy. Uh, uh, of all the things investors want, especially large institutional investors, they would like certainty, they would like regulatory and tax certainty so they can make their plans for how they deploy their capital. And rapid changes in policy is bad for the market.
2: Now, very quickly, Ross, now uh, a couple of groups, a couple of more socially minded groups, especially the uh, Social Democratic Party, uh, they have kind of blasted this removal of uh, the capital gains tax. Others have applauded it. Do you see this playing any kind of a role uh, as we get into the 2016 election?
1: No, I think this is a dead issue. I think the majority of people have have taken the view that it it was good to get rid of it and to have finality on this
2: issue. All right. So finality on that issue and finality on that segment. So we're going to be moving on. To uh, the last segment for the broadcast, real quick, this is just going to be for our uh, film fans out there, just so you kind of have a sense of what's going to be going on this weekend. What is going on this weekend is Taiwan's premier movie award and film festival, The Golden Horses. Uh, Gavin, that's uh, kicking off tomorrow night. That's tomorrow night,
3: Saturday, November the 21st, and it's being held at the National Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall in Taipei, where it's usually held.
2: And uh, who's up for the awards this year?
3: We've got a bevy of awards here this year, but Ho Xiaoxian's movie The Assassin is leading the pack for this year's awards with 11 nominations. No surprise there. Including Best Feature Film, Best Director, Best Lead Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, and I could go on, but I won't.
2: <laughs> All right, and that that's, is...
3: That's actually, yeah, that that's a local movie, and that's mm. up against a movie by another Taiwanese director, Zhang Tzu-Chi, I believe his name is, and that's a movie called thanatus drunk i wouldn't know anything about that movie but that's that for a top of as well okay there's a movie by hong kong director philip young called port of call cool. that's all also up for best movie there's a movie by a tibetan director called thalo that's the movie's name not the director's <laughs> name and there's also a movie by a chinese director jia Zhangke called mountains may depart and they're all up for best that's movie fine. yes All right,
2: so a lot to look forward to tomorrow night. Uh, Do you know what time that's coming up? Uh, It starts at
3: 7 o'clock, and it will be broadcast on one of Taiwan's myriad of cable television channels.
2: (laughs) So just kind of click through until you'll find it. You'll find it eventually, You'll find it on one of the uh, 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 the variety channels. Uh, All right. Okay, so uh, something for our film buffs out there to uh, look up for. Uh, We don't have a lot more film insights to give you guys. Just it's happening. Look out for it. Uh, It's a good time if you have the time. Last up for today, this is for our podcast listeners, uh, and uh, this is a decidedly, well, in my opinion, this isn't a very funny story. I feel like it's more of a a telling story. Gavin had a couple chuckles about it, but uh, we'll see if he can bring the chuckles in later in the segment. Uh, So what's going on? The Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been forced to defend a decision to ban modifications to the nation's passports. Uh, Now, here's where this kind of gets complicated. Of course, anything gets complicated uh, when passports or any other national symbol is in the equation in Taiwan. This is no exception because uh, one man's passport defacement is another man's way of expressing national identity. Uh, Gavin, tell there was a bit of a, a movement that grew up around Taiwan passports. What was that?
3: This goes, this goes back to the Republic of Taiwan stickers, which people were sticking over the ROC emblem on the cover mm-hmm. of their green passports. Now, the, the stickers were designed by some chap whose name I forget, but it doesn't matter. But he caused a bit of a stink because you They they were giving away these stickers. Mm -hmm. at certain places all over the island, they'd give away loads of these stickers, and people were using them on their passports, covering up, like I said, the ROC emblem. And the designer of the sticker has been quoted on his Facebook page as saying that the sticker movement is not aimed at altering the passports, but it is instead an act of culture interference, Mm. through which the stickers hide the Republic of China, a country, him, that's the creator of these stickers, and his supporters say does not exist, and they do not recognise. They are more pro-independent-leaning members of the public, one could say.
2: But that's not how the government sees it. Now, the government was a bit irate about it, but it,
3: it... and we'll go into that in a minute. Donovan can tell us all about that. But what made me laugh was a DPP lawmaker stood up in the chamber this week holding photocopies of green ROC passports, and he had a lovely one. He had the lovely Hello Kitty passport, which
2: I want. <laughs> a Hello Kitty passport. Nobody would say no to that. I guess he was showing uh, what kind of a slippery slope we would be on if we allowed these uh, passport stickers to proceed. Uh, Donovan, tell us, uh, tell us what the government's line on this is.
0: Okay, well, basically, the government actually didn't have a law, and I actually know people who've traveled using these stickers on their passports. Now, AIT quite a while ago, uh, several months ago, actually said that the the United States would not accept uh, passports with these stickers on them. But in practice, they have, actually, which is quite interesting. So according to uh, the new laws that they put in, uh, they uh, they they've now added a statute on modification, alteration, or stamps to the passport refers to any uh, unauthorized acts made to the cover, back cover, inner pages of a passport that could affect its original appearance. They've, now they've actually put this into law, which apparently will take effect uh, uh, on on January first. Um, so Hello Kitty would no longer be part of your national identity, and I, and I, I actually, I deeply grieve for that.
2: Yeah, that's the real tragedy here. I, I think I would have to agree. I'd have to have shout ding-dong
3: then, wouldn't I? Yeah, of course. Dogs. No, no, no,
0: come on, Totoro. we got to go, go for, for Totoro <laughs> here.
1: Well, I, I don't want to get into a catfight with Gavin about this, but there is an important principle here, which is uh, defacing a passport does make it difficult for, uh, immigration officers in other countries, when, when people are entering to a, to uh, inspect and assess the validity of the passport, so there, there is a, a serious issue here, which is the convenience of using the passport to enter other countries. And when those officers see something that defaces the passport, it might actually make it difficult for Taiwanese to use those passports. And we should keep in mind, to be fair to the current government, they have negotiated. Visa-free entry with, with a large number of countries over the last seven years for Taiwanese travelers.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's a good thing that, that you know that the government is taking decisive action to make sure that nobody in the world confuses the passports here from say you know China or Thailand.
2: That's uh that's not quite a cat fight, but it does sound a little bit like a Hello Kitty fight, perhaps. <laughs> hey,
3: don't knock Hello Kitty. Don't near, shout ding Dang. But I'm, i was amazed by this story because the fact. That, that, just betrayed your age there. I know. But. I was actually quite amazed by this story, For the fact is, it, it's common knowledge where I come from, Britain, that if you deface a British passport and you apply for a new one, the government will think twice about giving you a new one.
2: Mm.
3: In fact, it even says in a British passport that the passport remains the property of the state rather than the individual, and defacing it or altering it in any way could result in the passport being made null and void. Right.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, as a Canadian, uh, the the passport actually specifically says it is the property of the state, and the state is literally the person of the Queen. So the Queen actually owns the passport. So don't return her calls because she might want it back.
2: I thought when you dissing Lizzie. See, I knew this wasn't going to be a funny bit. All of our hackles are up. All of the bad spirits are here. I knew this wasn't going to be funny. That's okay, though. Some serious issues to tackle. The Hello Kitty claws are retracted now, everybody. We're going to move out. Uh, to the end of the show now, that is it for today. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening to iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show, it lets us know what you're thinking, and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yes, goodbye. And by phone, Donovan Smith. Thank you. And also by phone, Ross Feingold. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.
1: Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news, only on ICRT FM 100.